The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. It's good to see everybody this morning. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 14. Matthew 14 is where we will be this morning. And, uh, you know, about a year ago now, something truly outside of ordinary happened to me. Um, I've actually shared this story before, but it's such an extraordinary story that I'm going to repeat it this morning. So I apologize if it's a repeat. Uh, but I was sitting at a coffee shop in, uh, on Magnolia with a window that overlooks Magnolia, and I was just working on my laptop. And as I was doing that, uh, about a 20 to 25-year-old kid I'd never seen before walks in, and he's wearing sweatpants and socks and sandals. So they kind of got the, like, the sock in the sandal look going. So I didn't take him super seriously. He walks up to me, and he goes, hey, brother, do you know where the, uh, the AT&T store is? I'm trying to find the AT&T store. And I said, uh, yeah, it's just, just right down the way. Uh, You'll see a place called Pizza Studio. It's right next to it. He said, thanks, man. I went back to work. And then he taps me on the shoulder again, and he says, hey, bro, guess what? I run a YouTube channel. And uh, today we're giving away $10,000 to somebody for a random act of kindness. And I just want to say thanks for helping me find the uh, AT&T store. And he pulled out of his pocket a fat stack of $20 bills, slams it down on the counter in this coffee shop in front of me and says, count that. That's real. That's yours, bro. Look out the window. I look out the window. Another kid in sweatpants is out there filming me on his iPhone. And for those of you that don't know me well, I'll tell you this. If he was trying to pick the the guy that's going to give him the visceral, sanguine reaction that's going to accumulate clicks on YouTube, uh, this kid chose the wrong guy. Um, that's not me. And so after a few minutes, he's having me count the bills literally in front of him. He says, you know what? This isn't working. He reaches in his pocket. He pulls out another stack of $20 bills, 10 grand, slams it down in front of me and says, you know what, bro? It's your lucky day. Let's make it 20 grand. 20 grand. What do you think about that? Now, if I could just let you into my thinking in this moment, I'm thinking to myself this, can I trust this guy? Is this real? Because there's two ways this ends. One, this ends in me getting totally had and losing all dignity trying to celebrate this. The other way is that I underplay it and don't respond, and so I don't get the clicks that he wants, and he walks out with the money. Well, the way this ended is he actually picks up the money after about five minutes. He says, thank you, and he walks out of the building and out of my life forever with the money. And that whole time, as I was rolling through my head, can I trust this kid? Is this real? And to be honest with you, in my heart of hearts, I never really believed him. You want to know why? Because 20-year-olds in sweatpants don't go around handing out $20,000 in cash, even in Los Angeles. That's just not something that happens. So my faith never really went to this kid and this action. But I will tell you this, if the instance had looked a little different, and it was Howie Mandel with a camera crew, and they had busted into Boulevard Cafecito, and the lights are shining, and the cameras are clicking, and Howie Mandel says, it's your lucky day, Ginger. You just got 20 grand. I will tell you, snot, tears, groveling at his feet, visceral joy immediately. Why? Because I would have believed him. <laughs> the, the, the reality presenting itself to me would have built my faith up to a place where I trusted, this is real. He's giving me $20,000. I just became able to afford a home in Los Angeles. This is a big deal. 
I would have trusted the reality of the event. Uh, David Wells, a theologian and author, said this. He said, the reality of God weighs lightly on the American church. The reality of God weighs lightly on the American church. What he's getting at is this, is that there's probably many of us here today who are engaging Jesus and the Christian faith in the exact same way that I engaged that kid in sweatpants with 20 grand in his pockets. I'm willing to play along. I'm willing to go through the motions on the off chance that this is real, that there's actually a reward at the end of this. But there's no actual deep-rooted, deep-seated, visceral, life-giving, transformative belief that what I am taking part of is actually real. To put it tangible to this moment here, that right now as we sit in this park, there is an occupied throne in heaven where God actually reigns, actually rules, actually gives grace to sinners through his son, Jesus Christ, actually sovereignly orders all the events that take place on planet Earth. Because I will tell you this, If we believe that reality, if we have faith in that reality in our heart of hearts of hearts, it will transform the way we walk. It will make us a distinct people. So there's a way that we can confessionally hold to all the right beliefs. There's a way that we can pray before our meals and go through the motions of church attendance. It's possible to pastor a church and be completely disconnected from any real transformative connection and faith in the actual reality of God bearing down on our lives as the sovereign Lord of all creation. And here's the thing, people who go through the motions of Christianity without a real connection to faith, to the reality of God in their hearts, they're generally unstable people. James 1.8 would say they're tossed to... They're unstable in all they do. And generally, they're unhappy people. They're joyless people. Why? Because if you don't truly in your heart of hearts believe that God is actually in control, actually ordering the events of your life, actually reigning in grace over your life, if you don't believe he's really in control, then that leaves you left to be in control of your life. And I'm telling you this morning, I can speak from experience, it is an emotionally and spiritually exhausting task to try to order and run your own life. So a question, is my walk with Jesus, you answer this for yourself, is my walk with Jesus right now in this moment, the realities of my emotional and spiritual and mental life marked more by a confident, calm reassurance and resolve that God is leading my life? Or is it marked more by anxiety, fear, and instability? You answer for you, I'll answer for me. The real question I want to lay before us this morning, this has all been foundation to get us to our text, is this. How do you and how do I become the kinds of people with such a deep assurance and faith in the reality of God's presence with us in the storms we face? that we face them with stability and joy. More concisely, how does faith grow in the life of a Christian, in the life of a Christ follower? How does faith, transformative faith, grow in the life of a Christ follower? This is an important question for us this morning, and here's why. Because faith activates the Christian life. Faith is the activating ingredient in the Christian life. 
If we don't have faith, we have nothing. Ephesians 2.8, a famous verse says we're saved by grace, but what does it say we're saved through? We're saved through faith, meaning this, faith in the reality of God activates the grace of God in our lives. It's through faith that we become aware and sense and experience the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, grace remains unactivated. And Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that without faith, you know the verse, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. So to put that in the positive, when we approach God with faith, when you and I come to God with a childlike, submissive, surrendered trust in his sovereign reign and love and grace over our lives, it's a pleasing thing to God. That pleases the heart of God when we approach him with faith. So we're going to parachute into a text this morning. Matthew 14. We're going to start in verse 22. Jesus is in the middle of his public ministry. He's just finished feeding the 5,000. And the five, feeding 5,000, we read that it was actually men. So he's actually just with five loaves of bread and two fish fed 15,000 to 20,000 men, women, and children. Let's go. Verse 22 of Matthew 15, 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The first thing we read in this narrative that actually happened is that Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat and go before him. He stays. He withdraws himself to pray and commune with his father, and he sends his disciples on a boat out into a sea that he knows, as we continue in this text, is going to be filled with wind and waves. He sends them into a storm. He sends them into a storm. Listen to this this morning. The fact that you and I are in a storm does not mean that God has not led us to the place we find ourselves. The fact that you are in a storm right now does not mean that God hasn't led you to where you are. I think there are two thoughts that tempt us when we face storms, when our lives become difficult. The first thought that I think we wrestle with and are tempted by in storms is this. If I'm in a storm... If I'm facing a storm, I must have gotten off God's path for me somehow. I must have somehow made a decision that has messed my life. I misread the signals. I didn't hear what God was actually speaking into my life, and I've messed up my life because I'm in a storm. I think that's a thought that tempts us at times when life gets hard. Well, consider this. Either God is sovereign and in control over your life, Either Romans 8.28 that says that God is working all things together for our good if we trust in him. That verse is either true or it's not. There are two options before us this morning. Either God's in control or God is not in control. We have to decide where we're going to put our feet down. Hear me. You cannot, you are not so powerful that you can undo God's direction and sovereignty over your life. We need to stop being petrified by potential past wrong decisions or mistakes or failures. And we need to learn to redirect that sideways energy 
towards engaging the present moment with faith that God has the ability to make all things right, to rewire even sinful decisions in time if we seek him for his glory and for our eternal good. God is sovereign in that way. I think a second thought that tempts us in storms is this. If I'm in a storm, God's abandoned me. God must have abandoned me if I'm in a storm. God isn't good. He doesn't love me or he wouldn't have sent me to this place. I'm sure the disciples wrestled with this thought. Jesus, you just worked miracles. You just turned 15,000 people. You leave us and send us out into the sea to fight the wind and the waves? This belief that God abandons us when things get difficult is where we find what's called a root of bitterness growing in our lives. It's where we start wrestling with God's goodness in our lives, potentially lodging accusations at him. Consider this if you're wrestling with that temptation and that thought. The disciples fighting the storm through the dark of night had to wonder why Jesus left them to this. But we'll see in this text that Jesus has a purpose in the storm. The reality, believer, is that often God will send us into difficult storms to teach us things about ourselves and him that we do not live and that we do not learn when we're sitting poolside on a summer day. Hear me, you don't learn who you really are. You don't learn faith, you don't learn trust on vacation. That is not where we grow. That is not where God works. God works in our lives in the storm. He uses storms to build faith and trust and joy and to show us in time his faithfulness in our lives. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Okay? fourth watch of the night. We don't really use that terminology anymore. Let me explain that to you. That means between 3 and 6 a.m., middle of the dark night. Jesus waited the entire night to come to his disciples. He let them endure the storm for a long time. Do you know what it's like to wait for something? Do you know what it's like to wonder, God, how long When will you deliver me from this? Has your night been long? I think the hardest question we ask in storms is how long, O Lord? I think if we just knew how things would end and when things would end, we could handle it a lot easier. The not knowing is a hard thing. God's timing is rarely our own. He teaches us faith in the waiting. And here's a a thing we can recognize in this text as well. The felt absence of God, when we can't feel his presence with us, does not signify his actual absence in reality. Yes, Jesus has withdrawn himself. He's gone up to pray. He's left his disciples to see. But do not think for a second that Jesus' finger and heart are not on the pulse of the disciples' struggles the entire time they are fighting this storm through the cold of night. Jesus' eye is on us. Sometimes God withdraws his felt presence to teach us a deeper faith. But his eye remains on us, always, with love. 
And when Jesus comes here, we see that he comes walking on the water. Okay? We've heard that if we're in church, but that's no small thing. What a moment, right? Jesus in the dark of night, I just picture it. In the dark of night, Jesus walking down from prayer, walking up to the splashing waves on the sea and looking down at them. And I wonder if he whispered something to himself like, watch this. Check this out. And he steps out onto the water. And it's concrete under his feet. And Jesus just goes for an evening stroll on the wind and waves. You know, I never miss an opportunity to pick on the movie, movie Frozen uh, because I have daughters and Frozen has picked a fight by me by forcing itself into my life on repeat. There's this scene in Frozen 2 where Elsa, you know, Disney in its wildest imagination, all of its storyboard art is coming up with the most wild things they can come up with. The best they can imagine. Frozen 2, Elsa's moment of self-realization. There's this glass horse in the ocean, and she has to tame it. And then she gets on this weird horse, and she starts riding it across the sea. Cool, Elsa, guess what? Jesus don't need a horse. Disney, in your wildest imagination, you are picking up leftover breadcrumbs from the realities that Jesus actually performed on the planet we live on. Keep trying, Disney, you'll get there. Sorry if you work at Disney. I love you. But hear me. Jesus don't need a horse. When Jesus wants to walk on water, it's concrete under his feet. Jesus is awesome. And in seriousness, it shouldn't be lost on us that all the narratives of our day are just mirroring the gospel back to us. Verse 26, Jesus is walking on water. He's approaching his disciples. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, terrified, and said, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. Twelve grown men on a boat in the dark, reduced to children in their bunk beds, scared of monsters in their closets. They think Jesus is a ghost, and they cry out in fear. Let's not miss this. Yesterday, what did the disciples see? What did they participate in? Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish. He prays over them. He hands it out to the disciples and he sends them out and they feed 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And the disciples were the men who literally were doing it, meaning they were the ones seeing the bread being multiplied somehow. I don't know how that happened, but they're the ones ripping it off and it's there when they go back for more. The disciples just witnessed Jesus doing miraculous things. You'd think by now their eyes and, and hearts might be going, this guy's not normal. Next time I see a miracle, I'm just going to trust the empirical data I do have that that's probably Jesus. But no, in this moment, the gravity of the disciples' hearts is not towards faith in Christ, but away from it. They think the first thought they have is not, it must be Jesus, it's, it's a ghost, it's easy to pick on the disciples here, but this lesson is for us. We are the disciples in this picture. I am. Can you not confess with me if you've been walking with God for any amount of time that though there have been trials, though there have been storms, he has been faithful. He has been your provider. He has been the lover of your soul. He's never failed you. And yet what do you and I do when storms come into our lives? We freak out. I freak out. God, you got me? Are you in control? What's going to happen, God? Help! 
The gravity of my heart is not towards faith. Faith in my heart only happens as a miracle. And Jesus, there's a reason he says often phrases like, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? He's going to say it in just a few moments here to Peter, and he's saying it to you and I this morning. Have I not been faithful? Have I not been good? Can you not trust me? This is why stories like this are here. They help us come to grips with the reality that our faith is weak and push us towards Christ to help build our faith. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water with you. He said, come, one word. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Christ in this moment does not greet the disciples' fear and panic with anger or judgment or even correction. He greets it with comfort. He says, don't be afraid, it's me, it's your, it's your rabbi, it's your teacher, it's your Jesus, and the dots begin to connect for the disciples. And Peter is evidently overcome in this moment by the sight of Jesus. I mean, picture it, the dark of night, waves splashing on an angry sea, the wind battering against the boat, against the faces of the disciples, blowing Jesus' hair back. And Peter says to Jesus, if it's you, call me out. Bring me out on the water with you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter climbs up, wraps his legs and hangs them over the edge of the boat. And in a moment, he entrusts his weight of his body to the water. In the midst of the storm, Peter stands on top of the water. And this is where we get to the real heart of everything I want to share with us this morning. This is where we begin to see in this text how faith grows in the life of a believer. How does that happen? Well, how did it grow in the life of Peter here? For a brief moment, Peter was so amazed. He was so captivated. He was so overcome by the reality, the reality of his Jesus and the power he was demonstrating over the wind and the waves and the storm. And as he fixed his eyes on Jesus walking through the dark on top of the waves, he grows unmindful of the wind. He forgets the waves. His vision is fixed on the person of Jesus. He sees only Jesus. And his faith begins spiking all the meters. And he steps over the edge. You know, there was a game I used to play growing up called NBA Jam. I'm dating myself here, I know. But it was, a, it was on Super Nintendo, 16 bits of glory. 16 bits of graphic glory. It was two-on-two -two basketball. And in this game, NBA Jam, uh, I'm a big basketball fan in general, but in this game, NBA Jam, anytime your player, your avatar that you were using made like four, five, six shots in a row, the announcer comes on in the game and he says this, he's heating up. 
And that's when you get really excited as like a 14, 15 year old because you know what's about to happen. The next time you make a shot when you're heating up, the announcer says again, and he says this, he's on fire. Anyone else played this game? Is it just me? Thank you. Yes. Okay. And what happens next when you, you literally burst into flames in the game and you become superhuman, you become godlike in capacity and sp- skill, and you just got like 15, 20 seconds before it fades where you are just an inferno in the game. And I loved it. I played the game for that reason. What's happening here in Peter is he's heating up. He's heating up. And how is he heating up? He's seeing Jesus. And as he sees Jesus, faith is rising up in him. The clear vision of Jesus has silenced everything else. It's silenced the wind. It's silenced the waves. It's silenced his fear. It's silenced the weariness of his body from an evening of fighting at sea. He's heating up. And as Jesus says, come, apparently he's on fire because he steps over and the waves, just like Jesus, are concrete beneath his feet. He's on fire. How? This is a picture for us today of how faith can grow. Peter is seeing Jesus. Are you seeing Jesus? Simply. This isn't complicated. He's beholding Jesus. He's looking upon his Savior, seeing him as he is, seeing him in his glory, seeing him doing miraculous things as he does. He grows forgetful of the storm. Faith subdues doubt. And transfixed on Jesus, he steps over the boat. And for a few glorious moments, he walks on the water with Jesus, which at least tells us this this morning. Listen to me. The secret to faith for you and me that can give us authority over the stormy circumstances of our lives, that can transform us from cowering children into people of faith that walk atop the hardships of our lives, is to see Jesus as he is, to view him with the eyes of our hearts. To put it in the negative, when a view of Jesus is lacking in our hearts, when we are not seeing him, we will be shaken by the storms of life. So this morning, if the storm you are facing has you shaken, I'm telling you what you need to do is fight to see Jesus. I'm telling you, listen to me. You need to fight with your time, with your energy, with your heart. You need to fight against the instincts in you, the laziness in you, and fight with everything you have to behold Jesus Christ. Okay, pastor, how? I'm not Peter. He's not standing in front of me on waves. How do we behold Jesus? Well, God has given us what theologians historically have called the means of grace. The means of grace The means of grace are the means by which the reality of God flows into our lives and builds faith. See, transformative faith in the reality of a God we cannot see 
It doesn't just magically spring up overnight. No one ever woke up in the morning and went, wow, godly meter at a thousand. What happened? What did I have for dinner? It's not the way faith grows. It comes to us through the means of grace. Faith is a gift of God. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 9, that even the faith we have is a gift of God that he gives to us. But hear me, he always and only gives that faith through the means of grace. And so where we have neglected the means of grace, we have cut ourselves off from the fountain. The only way that grace can actually flow into our lives. Listen to this quote from Octavius Winslow from a book called The Inner Life. It's in a little bit of old English here, so so track with me. Give all diligence in the use of the means of grace if you desire a flourishing state of soul. They are the divinely appointed channels of conveyance from the fountain. They are the tributary streams from the great ocean. You cannot possibly maintain a healthy, vigorous state of inner life without them. You cannot neglect with impunity private prayer, meditation, self-examination, or the public ordinances, the ministry of the word, the services of the sanctuary, the assembly of the saints. A slight thrown upon these must entail a severe loss to your soul. Some Christians can go from Sabbath to Sabbath plunged in worldliness or eager in the pursuit of gain, in total neglect of the prayer meeting or of weekly Bible lectures, those needed rests and hallowed pauses in the way, as if there were no such appointments. These are among the things which weaken hands and discourage the heart. But a more painful calamity even than this is the dryness, deadness, and barrenness which this neglect brings into their own souls. Are you feeling dry? Are you feeling dead? Is your soul feeling barren? Have you been availing yourself of the means of grace? Private prayer, the word of God, meditation, self-examination, and the public means of grace, the preaching of the word of God, what we're doing right now, the assembling of Christians together, the sacraments of communion and baptism. Look, I wish I had a magic elixir that I could give you this morning and say, hey, if you're dry, if you're dead, if you're struggling, if you're not seeing Jesus, Here's the magic potion that I can hand you and, 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 you and it'll grow in your life overnight and you'll be there. I don't have that. God hasn't given it to me. Not for myself, not for you. What I have is the means of grace and the question for you, are you making yourself available to him? Really, intentionally. Because if God is real, nothing could be more important than knowing him. Sensing his felt reality in our lives. Are you availing yourself of the means of grace? Let's push towards Jesus together. Faith and sight grow through the means of grace. Verse 30 and 31. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? We read here that when Peter saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. There's a verse in scripture that may be familiar to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. What do you think the enemy of faith is? What do you think the enemy of faith is? I think most of us would probably answer doubt, fear. It's not what scripture tells us. You know what scripture says the enemy of faith is? Sight. Sight. The things our eyes show us. Ephesians 1.18, the apostle Paul prays for us and he says his prayer is that God would open the eyes of our heart to behold spiritual realities. Open the eyes of our heart to behold spiritual realities. Your eyes have, your heart have eyes. Your heart has eyes. And you need spiritual sight this morning. And if all we are gauging reality through is our physical eyes, that is the enemy of faith. That is the enemy of faith. We need to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. Not trust that all we see is all there is. Here, Peter sees the wind and the waves. His eyes suddenly start drifting from Jesus, and as he notices again the howling storm, the wave, the winds, they move and they encroach from forgotten altogether to periphery until they stand front and center, and the faith that he was experiencing in Jesus is replaced again by the natural fear of the storm. At the risk of redundancy, Our great task is to keep our eyes on Jesus. You and I are either looking at Jesus and growing in faith, or you are looking at the storm and shrinking in faith. You are either growing in faith through sight of Jesus, I am, or we are failing to behold Jesus, beholding the storm and shrinking in faith. Hebrews 3.1 tells us to keep our thoughts fixed on Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What is the Christian life? It's a life of faith fixated on Jesus, not moving, not looking away. John 15, Jesus says he's the vine and we're the branches. We must abide in him. We must remain in him. And he says if we don't, we can do nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing of eternal worth, nothing marked by faith. If we are not abiding our vision with Jesus. So I want to wind down with a question. What is the wind on your face right now? What's the storm you're facing? What are the waves crashing into your boat? Every single person here is facing a storm of some sort, some shape, some size. Jesus himself said it, in this life you will have troubles. Is your storm financial strain? Is it sickness, disease, cancer? Is it a faltering marriage, a failing marriage, 
Is it depression? Is it anxiety that just will not silence? Is it an addiction that you just cannot break? A longing that is beating you up? Is it suicidal thoughts? Is it the sting of the passing years of singleness? Wondering when that someone will come. Is it infertility, a deep longing for children that's going unmet? Is it a undertone of grief at the discord and political conflict we're all walking through? Is it a child who's lost in addiction, a prodigal who's wandered from the faith? Is it something I have not listed? Hear me today, church. Hear me today, every person in this place and online. Each of these storms, every storm, there is only one way forward. On the authority of God's holy word, the only way forward through the storm is with your eyes and your heart and your thoughts fixated on Jesus. Not looking away. It is only the sight of Jesus that can make us the kind of people who don't quiver in the boat, who are not overcome by fear, who are not robbed of joy, who are not just surviving the day. It is only the sight of Jesus that can make us the kind of people so filled with faith in the reality of our God that we hang our legs over the edge of the boat, step out into the storm with Jesus. But the question remains, are we seeing him? Are we beholding him? Are we applying our lives to the means of grace? In his presence with us, a tangible reality will transform the wind and the waves to silence. Does the voice of Jesus have more authority in your life and mine than the voice of the storm? This Tuesday night, (laughs) roughly 60 hours from now, our city will be huddled around TVs, anxious, awaiting the result of the election, For those who have no view of Jesus, that storm, depending on the result, will bring a response of either elated adulation that can only be described as worship, or perhaps despair, fear, outrage that again can only be described as worship. The waves will crash into our country, into the living rooms of our city, into the streets of our city. And church of Jesus Christ, hear me. Whether your preferred guy wins on Tuesday or not, those of us who have beheld Jesus and belong to Jesus should have such a firm foundation of faith in him that we are distinct in how we respond. That we are able to be engaged 
to experience gladness or disappointment, but not respond in such a way that would reveal that our deepest faith, our deepest hope, our worship has uprooted itself from Jesus and grafted itself to politicians and policies. Why? Because hear me, church, whoever wins this Tuesday, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you are standing on this rock, if I am, our hearts should be able to engage and respond in the election in a way that displays no matter who sits in the seat that fills the Oval Office, our faith and hope was never on the line with that. That that kind of worship is reserved for Jesus Christ who sits on the occupied throne of heaven and is in control even of the election. Do we trust his word this morning? Do we trust his word this morning? Because according to Daniel 2.21, it is Jesus who changes times and seasons. It is Jesus who removes kings and sets up kings. According to Proverbs 22.1, it is Jesus who holds the king's heart in his hands like water, who directs it wherever he wants. According to Romans 13.1, it is Jesus who appoints the leaders of governments. So don't, miss me, don't mishear me, please. I am not saying it's not good and right to be engaged, to care, to fight for the good of our world as it is here and now. I am saying that whether we meet disappointment or relief this Tuesday and in the days that follow, as believers in the one true King, we should be able to do it in a way that proves and proclaims with powerful testimony to our families, to our friends, to our community, dare I say to our own hearts, that hope and faith and peace and joy for us do not hinge on a on a Donald Trump or Joe Biden administration, but on Jesus Christ and the occupied throne of heaven. Here's a promise for us this morning. Isaiah 9, 7. Speaking of Jesus, our God, our reality, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can we together as one people right now lift up the election in prayer together to our God? Can I pray for us? Will you pray with me? Will you unite your heart with me in this prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we bring you our hearts, asking for faith, asking for faith in the storms that await us this week. As we come to this weighty moment for our country, fill our hearts with love, fill our hearts with grace for one another, even in disagreement. 
Keep us as one through the bond of peace that we share in Jesus. Let that gospel bond hold us together and make us distinct, marked by love in a city and world that is drawing battle lines. Give us spiritual vision to see that the true enemy of this church and your kingdom is not a politician, that it's not those who vote for him. It's Satan who thrives on division, who stands over this moment with glee as he watches society fracturing, and who would use this election to divide the church if we are not wise to his schemes. So Father, make us wise to the schemes of our true enemy. Father, our prayer for this election is the prayer you gave us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in faith, knowing that whatever the immediate result is, you stand above it. You order it in perfect wisdom for our eternal joy in Jesus and your eternal glory. Give us eyes to see and trust that even now you are ushering in your kingdom and reign. And that's where sin and death and suffering and injustice and all the wickedness will be no more forever. Swallowed up in the fiery sea. Father, you've instructed us, you've given us directions in 1 Timothy 2 to make supplications and prayers and intercessions for kings and all those in high positions. And so we receive that. We humble ourselves beneath it, Father. We lift up to you the leaders of this country. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would give them grace. We pray forever for whoever the next president of this country would be, Jesus, that you would be with him and give him grace and give him wisdom. And Father, we rest ourselves as we do that in your throne that is occupied forever, in your reign, and we await your return. As we go this morning, mark us by love, mark us with faith, make us distinct. Mark us with the self-sacrificing love of your son demonstrated at the cross who laid down his life for us, though we were enemies. And in doing so, he made us brothers and sisters, eternally loved, your children. Father, be with us now. We stand as one to worship you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.